0: Hello listeners and welcome to the Afriwet podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afriwet world, we invite you to check out previous Afriwet episodes which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We're headed to Southern Africa for part one of the Maravi Empire. A shout out to my South Africans out there. Afriwetu has landed on your borders. Before we begin, a quick note, please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu across all of them, where we do post interesting facts, stories, updates and links if you wish for further study for all you lovely people but for now just sit back and enjoy the journey so before we get into it let's see where on the continent we are today so the modern location if you will of this empire If you take out your maps and you trace down your finger to the East African coastline, stop at Mozambique and head inland, are we together so far? So the empire at its height in the 17th century spanned from this coastal part of Mozambique going westwards inland to a massive area north of the Zambezi River, stretching further towards the Luangi River and onwards to the Dwangwa river. That, my people, is a lot of landmass. I'm sure
1: you'll see. And
0: then on top of that, its influence was felt far and wide across modern-day Zambia, Malawi, and Mozambique. Now that we have that in mind, just a little bit of background. So studying this empire, to be honest, was quite a journey. And one of the things that I want to share at the start is the different terminology used within the context of the civilization and her people, which did trip me up from time to time, I must admit. So, let's look at the descriptor of the people. Because for Afriwetu, we are here to meet our ancestors, who are the people. So, let's begin with the term Chewa. A term that in my research is used interchangeably for different communities who more or less share the same culture. And in this region and from this empire, this this is mostly found. So, in places, it is used to speak of the four clans of Firi, Firi, Banda, Mwali, and Koma, And then to add to the complexity, the term pre-chewa is also used for all but the theory. And then some see the term chewa as a more recent version as the term maravi. Well, rather to replace the term maravi. And then even with this term, Maravi, it's also used to describe different communities who, depending on which side of the modern borders of Malawi or Zambia you're in, in the former it's linked to the Chewa and in the latter to the Nyanja. And then these terms, together with the ones we've just mentioned, are also used to denote clans. And we shall uncover more on clans in part two of this civilization under society. And then we have the way in which the civilization is described. In some places it is called an empire and in others a confederacy and the ones who know less call it a kingdom. But for us at Afriwetu, we shall use the term empire. And for the people, we shall refer to them as Maravi, unless specifically referring to a specific community. Whew. And with all that background, I think this is a good juncture to head into the origins, right? So the Maravi are believed to have officially landed in the 15th century, according to archaeological finds in the area. The initial waves included the Fury clan, who had migrated late 14th century from the Luba Empire up north. Afri we to cover the Luba in Season 1, Episode 11, so please go have a listen. The Firi were of a noble class and on landing went about establishing their authority over the indigenous people that they found. They came with their own version and ideas of statehood and kingship, which they were able to use and take on the role of the ruling class in this new state. And then if you just go screeching back to just before we get into all that, um, because it feels as if I'm running ahead and missing the fun stuff. One of the original stories, in fact, one of the stories claims that the original wave of migrants who were later to be seen as part of the original inhabitants of the area were the Banda and the Mbewe people, amongst others. They were said to have come and settled in the region, covering the area from the northeast of Lake Malawi all the way down to the eastern shore of Mozambique. They are considered the pre-Chewa, And then it is way later that the arrival of the people who are known collectively as the Chewa, and who we spoke of earlier, the subsect of the Firi land. And now, from here, the story goes that this subsect of the Chewa were led by a military leader out of this Luba empire and his name was Kalonga Chinkole Firi. Chinkole and his kin including his mother Nyangu, left their home, headed southeast until they landed at the Choma mountain region. Here they paused to regroup because it was claimed that they had fled from the Luba. And basically, once they had paused and regrouped, they then kept it moving, heading northeast, passing the Zambezi. They then turned eastwards, arriving at their final destination in central Malawi. In the course of this journey, Chinkole died. And he was then succeeded by Chidizonzi, who then became the official Kalonga, because then what had started as a name, Kalonga, then became the title for king. So there are a number of theories as to how the Inkama Chewa then dominated their new home, ranging from good old-fashioned, forceful and militaristic conquest, to the strategic assimilation of peoples, to the use of their more superior superior appreciation of governance and that once they had become dominant, they then solidified it by using the access to and wealth generated from the rich trade. What it is agreed upon is that it wasn't an immediate takeover. Instead, it took some time to really gain the full dominance then as the maravi Firi then achieved this they then took over as rulers, with the pre-chewa retaining their ownership of the soil specifically the banda and the bewa who were then known to be also the clans of the rainmakers and having a deep ritual connection with the lands so to be fair it made sense now there is some conflicting views as to the origin story as it always is, so it'd be great to hear from my Afriwatu from the area, their version of this story, and then we can also share with the Afriwetu. Yes. <laughs> Let's have a brief mention of some of the significant rulers, the Kalongas of this empire, starting with Chinkole Mazizi. As I said before, he was the original Kalonga leading his people out of the Luba Empire to find new lands to call home. His story ends in about 1505, before the empire comes into its own. And what he started grew into one of the most significant polities and civilizations of the region and basically he was the father of the nation the real Oji Kalonga. He was succeeded by his royal Fury clansman Chidizonzi in 1505 till 1513. He was the pivotal Kalonga as he established the foundation of the empire and settled the people into what was to become the capital of the Maravi in Mankamba. This capital was not just political, but also the religious center of the Maravi. Kalonga Chidizonzi had his own headquarters in Manthimba, which was to the west of Lake Malawi. He introduced various tactics to ensure loyalty and fealty to the Kalonga's rule, and he pulled from political and religious tools, tools that were also kept in years later by his successor Kalongas, To basically keep the Maravi together and maintain the loyalty of the tributary chiefs and headmen. On his death, he was followed by Kalonga Chisinganyu who reigned until 1555 and he in turn was succeeded by Kalonga Mpunga. Mpunga reigned until 1580 and he is mostly credited with the northern expansion of the territory reaching the lands of the Tonga and the Tumbuka, one of the empire's key expansion periods. Then we come to 1605, where the Empire is led by one of the more well-known rulers of the Maravi, Kalonga Mchepera Mzula. He is said to have ruled for 27 years and was quite a prolific and warrior ruler. And then whilst we're still here on the rulers, what better time to have a mention of the women in power? <laughs> So we should really start with the Mwali, the Kalonga's most senior wife and queen. She was always a member of the Banda clan. They, this clan, had the privilege of being the sole providers of all Mwalis. She played a key part in many ways. Politically, she was integral to the process that chose her successor, Kalonga, and spiritually, she was the official caretaker of the Kalonga shrine at Mankamba. A question to my Afriwatu, the descendants. In my research, I found something quite interesting around the word and, well, the title Mwali that sits outside of it being used solely for the queen where it is acquired through marriage to the Kalonga. In fact, the opposite thing that I read was that the Kalonga is the Kalonga because he marries the Mwali and that she is the one who holds a title of Ziko, which means the owner of the land. And in some way, this is acknowledged by the system, even outside of those who trace their roots to the Mwalis, And those who trace their roots are very clear of her superiority. Now, to be fair, when you seriously think about this, it makes logical sense. Well, at least to me, in my head. Now, work with me. So if we take the view that the Banda are Chewa and therefore, the original owners of the soil having been the original inhabitants, then it stands to reason that their women are the same. And ergo, this latter theory makes sense, no? Anyway, as I said, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And with that, let's head over to the governance of this empire. Cool? <laughs> So, a fun fact to start with. I really love these fun facts. The Kalonga was represented by the never-ending fire. This fire, once lit on his ascension to the throne, was kept alight with reed mats, and it was only on his death that the fire would be extinguished. That's kind of a dope fact. So now, as we know by now, this empire was ruled by the Kalonga, who held a position of power and respect. We met a few of them a few moments ago. He tended to be from the Firi clan of the Maravi, those who were the latter migrants to the region. His rule was based on the state formation of a centralized system of government that was established around 1480 AD. It was a combination of the imported Chewa system of governance that was a hierarchical and administrative system, which was blended with the pre-Chewa's religious rights and practices. Then added to this mix was a different clan's combined social and political practices and all together these formed the rules of the lands. We already saw how the role of clans such as the Banda was integrated and their shared value for women as key pieces of politics worked with the Kalonga's senior wife, the Mali's role. In addition, she and other noble women were placed in charge of the state's harvests when it came to the storage in the granaries and the distribution across the lands. Thus, women played an important role in the governance of the empire. In fact, speaking of women, the importance of the matrilineal heritage and lineage was reflected in the political and societal system and thus in the governance matters, especially around succession. The general rule was that the ruler was succeeded from his matrilineal side. Basically, the next Kalonga was his sister's or closest female's relative's son. What about their own sons, I hear you ask, from the patrilineal side? What happens to them? Well, these male heirs are fielded out and go into the empire to lead their own lands, which then become a part of the empire. And speaking of these lands, a nice segue coming... The empire was considered a confederation, a federation of sorts, made up of these and other tributary states. These were then ruled by individual chiefs, including these junior male nobles. Each of them would have to pay homage to the central Kalonga dynasty, and in part two, we'll look at the expansion, we'll learn a little bit more about them. As an added layer of governance within each of these, they were the headmen, who were also rulers in their own right with authority over their own communities. Now, we heard this term before, Ziko, which means the owner of the lands. And depending on which side you fall on, the Kalonga, in this instance, was also considered the Muninziko. And he was said to then have a full say in how the land was used and how to stivied up. This power that he had over the allocation and distribution of lands was also something that he shared to a certain extent with his government. That included the Pre-Chawa clans. And within these clans, some had special designations granted to them, including our Banda, because of their obligation to provide a Mwali, who was a shrine caretaker, while they were designated the caretaker clan. Then you have the other example, which is the Mwale clan. They were known for being a warrior clan because they were responsible for providing leaders for the armies and they were integral in the decisions made on the strategic military battles for the Maravi armies, armies that were known to be quite fierce and formidable. The Maravi was not just run on the administration but was also interwoven with deep religious rituals. A good example of one of those is Amlira. And actually, speaking of that, now would be a good time to head over to the religion of the empire. Cool. And a quick heads up, this is the last section before we wind up part one. So the rulers and leaders from the Kalonga down to the village chief all held positions as the spiritual heads of their communities, most of whom came from the Firi clan. These then were the attendees of the Mlira. This annual ceremony was a big one in the empire and was held at the official capital of Mantimba. The Mlira was where the first Kalonga, Kalonga Chinkole, whose spirit was represented by a serpent, the Mlora, was venerated and celebrated and all who came were to pay homage to his memory. This serpent was then to be greeted with sacrificial rituals and offerings upon its being manifested by all the rulers. peak of the ceremony, there was the burning of the marimba bush. And this is not like some small, tiny bush. Oh no. The marimba was burned running alongside the lake for quite a stretch. To be honest, it must have been quite a spectacular sight. Okay, now I know we started really hot, pun intended, so let's just take a step back and cover some more basic facts about the Maravi and their religion. So there was a belief in a single deity the high god Pambe or Chuta, who was considered the supreme creator of the world with dominion over everything. He was also considered to be a benevolent deity, controlling the rains and the empire's well-being and harvests for his people. And although he would be said to show his displeasure towards his people by withholding the rains for various reasons, one of the key ones being witchcraft, he wasn't really considered malicious. Then on top of the worship of Juta, we also find, like in many similar cultures, the veneration of the ancestors. This ancestral worship was known as mzimu. It played a central role in the Maravi religion. Mzimu was based on lineages, with the people communing with their direct ancestors, who they then considered as their guardians. Which then brings in another key aspect of their beliefs, that death was but a part of the continuum of life, a phase that one had to go through and was not to be feared. The people were buried in accordance to specific burial rites. They even had special rules to deal with children outside of the normal adult burial rites, and they even had burial sites set aside for these young ones. Now, as with any self-respecting ancestors, There had to be a secret society, and our Maravi are no different. Theirs was called Nyao, a society that began before the 15th century. So now, let's jump onto the history stream, and with a flick of a fly whisk, we find ourselves in the middle of a town, and there's a gathering of men near the main central area, looking dressed up to do something. We're ushered to another enclosure and then it falls silent. Our guide whispers, the men are about to tell the story of the Nyao, its origins. Shh, let's listen in. An old man walks to the center. He's one of the elders and he begins. A long time ago, in a place much like this, with the people Much like us, there was great famine and drought. The people were suffering and desperate for some reprieve, looking to their rulers and the medicine men and even the sorceresses for any solution. But none was found, and the rains were not forthcoming. But there were stories, stories about a special man, who lived in Thulu, which sits between Linzadzi and Chirua. His name was Nyanda. He was known for his dancing style and the creative dances that he had. One new one every time people saw him. And in these times, the people who were looking for ways to forget their pain, their distress, went to watch him as somehow his dancing managed to ease their suffering, and for a moment, they forgot their troubles. So people came from far and wide to watch him, and is is our tradition. They did not come empty-handed. They brought and they gave him their harvest, a token of their appreciation. His dancing had become famous, and it got to the stage that even in the drought, he had plenty of food enough to share with his guests. His home became a safe haven where people could come, eat and rest as they stayed with him before going back to their homes or continue their journey. Young men then started to learn these dances, becoming a professional dancing troupe. They took their craft seriously and only performed once they had truly perfected the styles they had practiced. These things that they practiced in secret, in the forests, so that by the time they performed, it was flawless. These young men then adopted the name, Nyao. Once the drought was over, these Nyao continued to dance and the people continued to gift them. Their harvest grew from just, not just the grains, to live animals as they now had greater bounty to share. The Nyao Society then became popular as a result, and their membership grew and grew and grew. They were not only popular, though, to those who wanted to join, but also for their performances, and they were called to dance for different functions, with the most requested being at funerals. But today, we, the Nyao, dance for you, To tell you our story. Your story. And the story of our origins. And in the blink of an eye. We're back. So as we leave our ancestors. Let's close off this episode. With a look at the role of women. In this religious context. I know I know. So, so soon, you ask, but I promise there is a part two. First off, they too, the women, had their own version of the Nyao, called the Dambwe. Their initiation into the society was led by the woman in the village who was seen as the head, and usually the relative of the chief. She was called the the other influential positions that the women led in the religious context is that they act as a conduits between the spirit and the mortal realms, convening the ancestors and the gods. This included a direct channel to Juta, from whom fertility was granted for those who were loyal to him. But very crucially, the Makiwana, the mother of all people, held the most powerful role as the high priestess and actually in some cases many considered her to be the wife of Judah and because of this she was said to have rain making powers which was to be fair primarily a woman's role although there were men who were appointed by tribute chiefs but they were still subordinate to her she was also said to have great prophecy and great wisdom this title also carried with it dominion over her own polity in Mincinja. There, she was a chiefess. We will hear a little bit more about her in part two, and we will hear much more about her in a future episode on the Undi Kingdom. So please remember to stay tuned. <laughs> And speaking of staying tuned, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I don't feel like I gave you enough of a heads up, but we have come to the close of this episode. But as I said, fear not, in a couple of weeks, part two of this empire will be rolling out just for you. So before we summarize, what else was happening in the world at this time? So in 1401, Dilwa Khan established the Malwa Sultanate in present-day central India. In 1420, there was the construction of the Chinese Forbidden City and its completion in Beijing. In 1500, Guru Nanak and the beginning and the spreading of the fifth largest religion in the world of Sikhism. Also in 1500, the Ottoman fleet of Kemal Reis defeats the Venetians at the Second Battle of Lepanto. In 1547, Grand Prince Ivan the Terrible is crowned Tsar of all Russia, becoming the first Russian Tsar. In in 1548, Askia Daud, who reigned from 1548 to 1583, establishes public libraries in Timbuktu in present-day Mali. In 1587, Mary Queen of Scots is executed by Elizabeth I. And then going back a bit in 1548, Askia Daoud, who reigned from 1548 to 1583, establishes public libraries in Timbuktu, which is now in present-day Mali. So to bring it home, Afriwatu, I have to say, this empire was a true joy to discover. It is one of the few that in all honesty I had not had much knowledge of and I initially thought this would be just one episode but the more I dug the more layers it just opened up and I thought this is why I love what I do because I can just keep telling these stories and I also love what I do because our ancestors stories are just so awesome. The Marawi Empire's descendants can be found spread out across southern Africa. And there are a lot of them. And there are a lot of works around, written by them and spoken by them. I would encourage you, as usual, to go and do your own deeper research. The Empire story continues next time as we look at its society, trade, economy, the military, and its eventual demise. It's so worth you tuning in for this, so please make sure you do. And with that, until next time, Mubarikiwe!
1: Zanga. Hakumango choka, nikumango bwela mbanda kucha Nisinku yake itabindikina mapunziro ziro Iendi kasu, wakumunda kusakambewa Bewa Awo wanzake watabindikina mapunziro ziro Iendi keni wakudimba kufesa foja Madula songa, songa, songa Sipala pwanchi zipanzo, opanda songa Madula songa, songa, songa.